Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew as we come to God's Word together this morning. And I invite you to open to perhaps the most famous words in the Gospel of Matthew. That would be Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Now as you're turning there, I remind you that just for the beginning of the new year, I'm looking at a three-week series on three pillars or three necessary prerequisites for a spiritually healthy church. And my goal is to draw our attentions to patterns of the New Testament church that led to spiritual life and gospel fruitfulness. Last week, we looked at pillar number one, which was that prayer is the power of a spiritually healthy church. And my prayer has been that last week would not be sort of one good week of conviction from a sermon, but rather a spur to a life of prayer among us that we might know the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit with us in communion with God through Jesus Christ. This morning, we're turning then to pillar number two. And pillar number two is this. The Great Commission is the focus of a spiritually healthy church. Again, we'll be looking at a number of passages today, but I want to begin by reading here in Matthew chapter 28. So follow along with you as we read the Word of God Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning and that your Spirit would take your Word and apply it to our hearts. May Christ be magnified this morning, we pray in His name. Amen. This morning, as we think about this second pillar of a spiritually healthy church, the image that I want to suggest to our minds is that of a fountain. I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of a fountain. Maybe it's a a fountain that's in your garden that uh, has this sort of calming, bubbling noise that you hear through your, your window. Or maybe, maybe the first image that comes to your mind is Longwood Gardens and the, uh, the power and the grandeur, the beauty of the, the fountains that they would have there. But what I really want to suggest to us is not so much a particular fountain, but the simple way that a fountain works. A fountain in its nature is a perpetual process of pouring water in to uh, something, a pool, a pond, uh, uh, that then overflows with water, and then it takes in that overflow to pour out again. And it's this process of overflowing, taking in, pouring out, overflowing, and it's water that is alive, if you will. Now, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian from the 1700s, suggested that a fountain is the best description of the character of God whose nature is so bursting with life and love and beauty and truth that he was disposed in his very nature to create in the overflow 
of who he was, sharing and pouring out of his divine fullness into creation. I want to suggest this morning that that same picture ought to be true of each of us as a Christian and of us as a church, that we would be so filled in Christ that we cannot help but overflow in the sharing of his life and love and truth with others. And that the more we overflow and pour out of ourselves so that others see the power of, of God at work through the gospel, the more we are filled and rejoice in the glorious goodness of God so that we long to overflow yet again. And it's a picture of a church that is alive. And so my thesis this morning is quite simple, and it is this. A church focused on itself will wither and shrivel. But spiritual life and joy come when our hearts beat with God's own passion to give ourselves to seek the lost and make disciples in Jesus' name. I'll say that one more time. A church that is focused on itself will wither and shrivel. But spiritual life and joy come when our hearts beat with God's own passion to give ourselves to seek the lost and to make disciples in Jesus' name. That's our thesis this morning. And in order to see that from Scripture, I want us to see three things. I want us to see the heart of God, the plan of God, and the command of God. So let's begin by looking at what Scripture tells us about the heart of God. And by this, I mean what God desires, what drives Him to do what He has done and is doing to carry out His plan of redemption. Now, there are various levels that we could look at this in Scripture when we talk about God's desire. I think Scripture would tell us that ultimately God's deepest root desire is that His people would find life in union with Him, delighting in Him to the greater praise of His glory, that He might be glorified as His people are restored to union with Him and find their delight, their joy, and their life in Him. That is God's great desire. But precisely because that is God's greatest desire, Scripture is quite consistent when it declares to us that God is driven by a desire to seek the lost, to see men and women saved from sin and reconciled to Himself. Now, if we wanted to see this, we might begin by looking at the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And I hope that we don't let over-familiarity with this verse or its association with billboards or athletes in their eye black distract us from the power of what this verse is saying. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It was God's steadfast love, His desire and His commitment to humanity to his people that he created that led him to send his son. Now, I think we would all agree that the depth or the strength of our desires can be measured in what we're willing to give up in order to receive that desire. I was thinking this week uh, about an example from early in our marriage. We were traveling to see family, and we had taken a flight and arrived in Atlanta for a connecting flight But just after we got there, it was announced that the entire Atlanta airport was shutting down for the night because of storms. 
Now, if you know anything about the Atlanta airport, you know it's the busiest airport in the country. And so as soon as they announced that, about a million people made a beeline for the rental car desks. And as we were waited in line forever, and we got to, to the front, and I was told that they had one car left. Now, this car was never a car I would normally rent. It had all sorts of upgrades, and of course, in this situation, they were charging an ungodly sum of money to rent this car. But I paid that ungodly sum of money because we didn't want to sleep with a million people in the Atlanta airport that night. That's maybe just a a small picture that came to my mind of what we would give up for something we desire. But when we ask about the depth of God's desire for it, His commitment to His people lost in sin in the world, His commitment, His desire was so great that the lengths He went to redeem His people included giving up His own Son that we might not perish but have eternal life in Him. And that is the measure of God's desire. If we want to keep looking in Scripture, we might look to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We saw last week that Paul urges first of all, of first importance for the church, that we pray for all people. But why does Paul say that that was of first importance? Well, he goes on to say this, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I realize for those who like their systematic theology and for our understanding of Scripture that there are several exegetical and theological questions that arise in this verse. And certainly, we need to consider this text alongside the many verses that talk about God's sovereign and electing purposes in salvation. But my concern is that in doing so, sometimes we undercut or cut the, the, this verse off at the knees and so miss its clear statement of God's desire that sinners be saved. I think of Luke 19 verse 10, which puts it this way when Jesus says that the reason he came, why, what was his goal, his purpose? It was to seek and to save the lost. And maybe we say, well, this is the New Testament God, the, the Old Testament God. He was a lot more interested in law and law keeping and things like that. Not so. We can look back at Ezekiel chapter 18 verses 30 to 32, where God says this to Israel, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Here is the heart of God. And let me just say, I I don't know all of you in the sanctuary this morning. I don't know where you might stand or how you might think about the Lord. But will you hear this appeal? Will you hear this desire from the Lord that you might turn from sin, that you might turn towards Him, that you might live? Have you considered your sin and how you stand before a holy God? And have you considered that He would send His own Son to die on the cross because of the depth of his love for sinners. Would you turn to him and find life? Well, of course, if this is God's heart, it surely should be our hearts as his people as well, shouldn't it? That's the way the Apostle Paul felt. I'm moved by his statement in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, when he writes, I have great sorrow 
in unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul here is literally adopting the mindset of Christ. He is saying he is prepared to die and to be cut off from the Lord that his brothers might be saved. Now, of course, he can't die that atoning death. Only Christ could die that atoning death. But Paul could die the daily death of sacrificing his life to proclaim the gospel. And that is just what he did. And that is the picture of what it looks like to mirror the heart of God and his desire to seek and to save the lost. As I thought about that this week, I thought, how often have I even inconvenienced myself for the sake of the gospel? Nevertheless, sacrificed myself, died to myself. And I think perhaps part of the issue is that I've not always had the heart of God. I've not always had an unceasing anguish for his people who are in sin, that they might know their Savior. Now, someone might say, well, Chris, that's all well and good, but I can't just roll out of bed one morning and decide to have anguish of heart. You can't just sort of manufacture emotions like that. But I would suggest that Paul didn't just wake up one morning and decide to manufacture the emotions of unceasing anguish of heart either. No, what Paul was doing was he was fixing his gaze on Christ and he was meditating on the cross and in the fulfillment of all God's promises in his Son. And it was as he marveled at Christ and the love of God for his people and at the plight of sinners apart from Christ that his heart began to beat with the heart of God. And so our response this morning is not to try to put forth some sort of effort to stir up emotion. No, our our response is to consider Christ and all that He did to cleanse us from our sin and the glory of one who would give His life to redeem sinners that we might be adopted into His family and enjoy communion with Him forever. It is that focus on the person of Christ and what He has done for us that will stir our hearts to begin to beat with the desire that God has for the lost. This is the heart of God. Second, then I want us to consider the plan of God. And the question that I ask myself here is this. If God desires to see His people of every tribe and tongue and nation redeemed from sin and reconciled to Himself, and if God is all-powerful and can do anything that He pleases, what is God's plan for bringing about His desire? Are you ready for his big plan? Drum roll, if you will. It's us, the church. And you might be thinking to yourself, hold on a second. I think you could do better than that, God. I mean, I know myself. I look around ourselves. Is the church really the best plan? But Christ is very clear. His plan for bringing out the redemption of his people is to spread the good news of the gospel through the church. We hear that right in the passage we read this morning, Matthew 28. In his final words to the apostles, Jesus declares, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. As the resurrected Son of God, the Father has given him the authority to send the Spirit to accomplish his purposes. So how is he going to use that authority? What's his plan? He turns to the apostles and says, Go and make disciples of all the earth. 
Now, in giving this command to the apostles, he is giving them as the representative leaders and the foundation of the church, the mission or the task of the church. And while each one of us will have different gifts and different roles in carrying this mission out, the shared mission of the church as a whole and therefore of every local church individually is to go about making disciples. I think we have a great picture of Jesus giving this mission to the church in the image of light in the Gospels. At least three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is either called or claims to be the light of the world. I am the light of the world, he says. John chapter 1, he is the light shining in the darkness that people who are enslaved in sin might know truth and life. But John chapter 9 verse 5 Jesus says specifically this. He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Maybe that begs a question. What happens then when Jesus ascends to heaven and is no longer in the world? Well, the answer is the church becomes the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he turns to his apostles and he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father that is in heaven. This is why in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, as Jesus is giving this vision to John, he says that the churches are lampstands. Well, they think about the tabernacle. The tabernacle would have been enclosed and dark, but the light for the tabernacle came from the lampstand. And now Jesus says, I am dwelling in your midst, though I have ascended to heaven. But on earth, you are the lampstand. You are the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then he turns to his apostles and to the churches and says, now you are the light of the world. Go in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to be the testimony to truth and life through Christ. Now again, you might think, boy, God, the church Have you read the headlines about pastors and churches and all of the mess they are in? Are you sure this was the best plan to use the church? But we just think for a second about the effectiveness of God's plan. In Acts 1.8, Jesus' last words to his disciples were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so in Acts 2, as he pours out his spirit, they go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And on day one, 3,000 souls come to know Christ. And then daily more were added to that number. And then they go out to Judea and Samaria. And all through Acts, through Paul and the apostles, the good news goes to the ends of the earth. And of course, as we begin to walk through the centuries, we see the gospel multiplying exponentially through the testimony and the witness of the church. In fact, after 2,000 years, we are told that in the last 100 years alone, 1.5 billion people have confessed Christ as their Savior through the testimony and the witness of the church in the world. Did God know what he was doing? Yes, he did. And he has sent the church to be his witness and the light that his people might come to know him. That's God's plan. Now, if God's desire is that sinners would be saved and his plan for bringing about that desire is the church, That leads directly to our third point this morning, and that is the command of God. 
And the command that God gives to each one of us is to use the gifts and opportunities that He has given us to go about making disciples. Now, I love the way that Harry Reeder, the late pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church, put it when he wrote this. He said, The Great Commission indicates that every believer will be seeking the lost as a natural fruit of being born again. I was down uh, at Harry Reeder's church a few years ago, and uh, as he was talking about this, he, he told us about a, a desire he had. And I understand why his uh, administrative help had not executed this desire, but he said he wished that they could have painted big letters on both sides of the doors to the sanctuary. And on the outside of the doors to the sanctuary that you would see as you were walking in, it would say, gathered out of the world as we come into worship. And then on the insides of the doors going out of the sanctuary that you would see as you leave, it would say, sent into the world. Because every one of God's people gathers out of the world to come together to worship the Lord, but then they are sent back into the world to be His light and His testimony. Those are our marching orders when we leave this sanctuary every single Sunday. Now again, we may have different specific callings. This is our shared mission. We may have different giftings, opportunities. Some of us may do this about our schools. Some of us may do this in our neighborhoods. Some of us may do this in our workplaces. Some of us may go to the nations as missionaries sent by the church. But as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.15, speaking to every believer, in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. This is a call to each of us. Now you'll notice in Peter's words that there are, there are two parts to this calling. He says, first, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And that, of course, shows up in the way we live our lives. Because if we aren't wearing the gospel, then our life may deny the power of the gospel we are attempting to proclaim. But then secondly, we are also to speak. We are to always be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have, because if we're not actively stating the gospel as the reason for our hope, then we're covering up the light that is attempting to shine from our lives. Now, I admit this is not easy. I'm sure you, like me, don't wake up in the morning and say, oh yeah, evangelism, do it all the time. It's easy. No, you know, big deal. Harry Reader warns, actually, that the longer someone has been a Christian, the more intentional evangelism must be, because it does not come as naturally to older believers as it does to new believers. As a new believer, our lives have been changed. We are overwhelmed by the love of God and what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. We can't help but talk about it. And, and Reader talks about when he first became a Christian, his first thought was he began to pray for his friend Larry and his desire to share the gospel. And as he was praying for this one day, he was sitting in his car in the parking lot of a convenience store and Larry pulled up next to him and saw a Bible on his front seat and asked him about it. And, and Reader thought, this is my chance. And he just, in his excitement, poured forth a torrent of his words all about what Jesus had done in his life. And he said, as he went on just talking and talking, he saw Larry's car start to inch forward and start to pull away and then just peel out of the parking lot. And, Oh boy, that was a big failure. Two weeks later, he ran into Larry's mom and she said, Harry, reader, Larry has become a Christian. And reader said, that's wonderful news. Is it because of what I told him in the parking lot? And she said, no, not at all. 
She said what you said didn't make any sense to him, but he thought, if Harry could be changed that much and be that excited about something, I should probably go check it out and see what it is. Yeah, but see, part of the, the challenge is that as we become, as we are believers for more and more time, we tend to surround ourselves with more believers and have fewer avenues to be with unbelievers. And we tend to get more used to the gospel instead of amazed at the gospel. And so as we who have been Christians for a longer time need to be more intentional about who we are with and we need to be more intentional to fix our eyes on Christ that we might stay amazed by the gospel. Because our commission is to be the light of the world, that the world might meet Christ. And our command is to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Now, as we come to an end this morning, I just want to make an additional comment, if I might. All that I say here should not make us think that evangelism is the only thing that we ought to be doing. Paul talks about how different people might plant the seed and others might water the seed and others might feed the plant. And one of the critical roles of the body of Christ is to teach everything Christ has commanded to those who come to faith in him. And of course, our own children right among us are part of the the soil for the gospel. And, And so I don't want to suggest for a minute that teaching children Sunday school and serving in the nursery and leading a home fellowship group or visiting a brother or sister in the hospital are not as important because they're not evangelism. That's not the point at all. In fact, those things are often the open doors that are right in front of us for kingdom ministry. And we desperately need you to do those things for the sake of the kingdom of God. But what I do want to suggest is two things. First, I I do want to suggest that our comfort with the weekly rhythm of church can cause us to lose our awe at Jesus Christ and our anguish for the lost and our readiness to give ourselves for the gospel. If we are, if no one among us is intentionally praying about whether the Lord would send them as missionaries, if no one among us is prayerfully nurturing the gifts and burdens for evangelism, and if we aren't all praying for the progress of the gospel out of a heart for the salvation of sinners and the glory of Christ, if those, if, if those things are not happening, we'll never accomplish the mission that God has given us as a church, and so we must guard against a satisfied complacency in our routine. That's the first thing I want to suggest. The second thing I want to suggest is that pouring ourselves out for the sake of the gospel, always costs something. Here's the way I was thinking about it this week, the question I asked myself. What would happen if our missionaries serving in Southeast Asia said to themselves, you know, if we go to Southeast Asia, we are not going to have Bible studies to go to. We're not going to have discipleship. We're going to really miss out on the riches of the American church. So I don't think we should go as missionaries. What would happen if our friends who went as missionaries to Egypt said, you know, if we go to to Egypt, our kids aren't going to be able to go to youth retreats. They're not going to have as many other believers as friends. And that might be hard, so we shouldn't go as missionaries. And what would happen if every single one of us said, you know, I really want to be encouraged in the Word of God, and I love adult Sunday school, so I'm just going to do that. I don't, I'm not able to take time to teach in children's Sunday school or teach in ESL or, or serve in, in other ways. What about a church plant? We've said that our hope is to plant a new church next year. And what if every one of us said, well, I just love Westminster. Westminster has a lot to offer, so I wouldn't go to another church plant. Yes, it costs something. 
But why do we plant a church? We don't plant a church because we think some people will like it better than Westminster. We plant a church because a new church is a new outpost for the gospel in a new neighborhood with new opportunities to see new disciples made for Christ. And if we're going to plant a church together, every one of us should be prayerfully asking, is God calling me to go for the sake of the kingdom that more disciples might be made in his name? See, the beauty is the cost of what we might give up is nothing compared to the joy of seeing Christ lifted up, of obeying his call, and of seeing his mission accomplished through us. In fact, obeying Christ and seeing the mission accomplished through us only fills us with more joy and more awe at his saving glory so that we overflow with more spiritual fruit yet again. Because that's the nature of the fountain. It pours itself out, giving, overflowing because of the richness of what it has received. And haven't we received every richness we could possibly imagine in Christ? So may we be fountains as we gaze at Christ and are filled with the fullness of God. May our hearts be consumed with God's own desire that sinners might come to know Him and find salvation in Him. And may we fulfill the commission that He has given us as a church by an outward-looking, self-giving, overflowing, kingdom-focused labor and love for the gospel. Because that is the second pillar and necessary prerequisite for a church that is alive. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for Jesus Christ and how I pray that we would not turn into just uh, uh, an organization with a rhythm and a routine that likes what we do. How I pray instead that our eyes would be always fixed upon you. That we would be prayerfully, eagerly giving ourselves for the sake of the gospel. That your people might be redeemed. That your name might be praised. And that we might know the joy of fulfilling the commission our Savior has given us to be the light of the world, that your kingdom might grow and accomplish all your purposes. Lord, we pray that you would do this among us. Give us this burden. Give us this heart. I pray through Jesus our Savior. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.